Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. So last time we left off with children being blessed by Jesus. They were allowed to come to him freely. You remember? The kids come and the disciples, oh, Jesus is too busy for this sort of thing. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. For such is the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Last time was children freely coming to Jesus. This time, a man is prohibited from coming to Jesus because of his own desires. Starting at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Well, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the man, young man heard that saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Heavenly Father, again, as we approach your word, make the book live to us, Lord. Show us our need. Show us our Savior. Show us your will for us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Outline's very simple today. Three parts. You see them on the screen there. In this passage, we find a man that thought that he could do some sort of work, some sort of behavior to attain salvation. Jesus ends up exposing the one thing that would keep this man from salvation. 
That's what we see here. The main point that we're going to draw out of the message that jumps right out of it is that salvation comes by grace through faith. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that is earned by our works, by our good behaviors, by following rules. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. Therefore, nobody can boast about it. Nobody can say, uh, you know, I've kept all the commandments and therefore I deserve salvation. Nobody deserves salvation. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. And that's what we see here in this passage today. We see that set in the context of a man that was so in love with possessions and money that he put all of his confidence and all of his trust and all of his security in those things. And when you come to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus asks you to now trust in him for all of the things that this man was thinking he was getting from his possessions. No one can serve two masters. When you surrender yourself to worship the true and living God, all other false gods can no longer sit on the throne of your life. And Jesus points out the false God in this man's life. And it's got a pretty bad conclusion. Number one of the outline, a wealthy man rejects salvation. In verse 16, he says, Now behold, one came and said to him. Mark in his gospel tells us that the man came to Jesus kneeling. So he respected Jesus as a good teacher, it says, and as one that had eternal life. He must have thought Jesus knew the way to eternal life as a good teacher because he asks him, how shall I inherit eternal life? What should I do? We don't know his name, but Matthew tells us that he was young and that he owned many possessions. Luke in his gospel says that he was a ruler. Therefore, we get the thing that he's commonly referred to as the rich young ruler. He seems to be a man of self-confidence, a guy that can make things happen. You know, you can read these things into that. He's asking, what should I do? You know, no doubt as a ruler, he's a man of some sort of status. He's wealthy, so obviously he knows something about managing finances. He's a man of self-confidence. And he comes to Jesus, maybe perhaps even flattering him a little bit by calling him good teacher. And we're going to see that he comes to Jesus and he's kind of got like a self-righteousness, self-justification in his heart. And he comes and he says, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asking, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How can I get saved, Jesus? Um, what, tell, me the, tell me the good deed or deeds or whatever. Just what is the thing that I need to do in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven? In order, I don't want to go to hell and be punished eternally for rejecting God. I want to go to heaven. So how do I get there? Tell me the one thing to do. You know? Or maybe you could just email it to me. You know? Or can you just do it in a checklist? You could set me a task in base camp you know, and we can, we can check it off. What is the good work? What's the deed that I need to do 
to deserve, to earn, to merit, to achieve eternal life. It's interesting to note that this man knows that he's missing something. That's something we want to know right away in this passage. He obviously thinks he's lacking something, right? And such is the case with many wealthy, good, moral, obedient people, is they know that something is missing. And this man does. So Jesus says, okay, I want you to get baptized. I want you to become a member of a church. No, he doesn't say anything. Those are good things. But he doesn't give him a list of works. In fact, what he does is he challenges this man's understanding of goodness. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. Now, some people would say, well, Jesus is saying here that he's not good and he's not God. What is he doing? That's not what he's doing. He is teaching this man that all humans are sinners and that God alone is good. See, when he comes to Jesus, he obviously doesn't know Jesus is God. And so he's calling Jesus good on the horizontal plane. It's like me saying, Corey, you're good, right? Coming up to Jeff and, hey, Jeff. Hey, good teacher, what could you, you know, and we're calling somebody good. We're using the term good on the horizontal plane. Do you know what I mean? Horizontal, human to human, vertical is us and God between us and God, but horizontal is this way. And so on the horizontal plane, this man's coming up and saying to Jesus, Hey, you're a good teacher. You're a good person. And Jesus says, Hey, why do you call me good? right? Why are you calling anything on this horizontal plane good? And what he's doing is he's calling into question this man's standard for goodness. And this is skillful what Jesus is doing. He's going to lead him to be able to receive eternal life. But first of all, he needs to take him to the true standard of goodness. This is what we need to know as Christians. The standard of goodness is not how much better you are than the people around you, but it's how you measure up next to God. That is, God is good. The standard for goodness is not how much better you are than your brother, your sister, your neighbor, somebody else. Because honestly, any of us in this room are doing probably, we're probably better morally than some people and we're probably worse than others, right? And so it's kind of a sliding scale, you know? If, you, if your standard of goodness is other people around you, either you're morally superior to everybody and all your eyes seem to see are all these people that aren't as good as you, <laughs> or else you have the other kind of eyes and all you see is these people that you think are better than you, right? One or the other. If your standard for goodness is the goodness of man, not the goodness of God. Now, if, if you understand goodness, truly what goodness is, and your standard for goodness is the goodness of God, you say, oh my goodness, <laughs> I am undone. I am wrong, right? If you compare yourself to other people, you might feel good or bad about yourself. But if you compare yourself next to God, you're going to come away and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I, I've broken laws. I'm, I'm in trouble, right? And so that's what he starts out doing is, is Jesus doesn't answer the guy's question directly. And what he does is he, he says, okay, you call me good. God's good, right? So you need to stop judging by human standards. He's already getting at that, right? He's, put, he's getting into this man's heart and saying, you know, he's rich, he's wealthy, he's, he's a ruler, he's uh, morally superior to people we're going to see here coming up. He thinks he's better than other people, right? And he's getting to this. 
Jesus says this, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. The man is asking what good deed he must do to earn salvation. And so Jesus takes him to the appropriate place. If you want to try to earn salvation by your works, then let me take you to the law of God. And that's what he does is he takes him to the Ten Commandments. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. I thought that salvation was by grace through faith, not by keeping the Ten Commandments. You're right. So is Jesus just messing with this guy? No. Salvation is a gift from God. That's Christianity 101. If there are two things that you need to know about Christianity, if we could boil it down to two, it's that Jesus is God and the other one is salvation is a gift. Those are two things that that's Christianity 101 is to get those in your heart. Now, when Jesus says, okay, keep the commandments, is he messing with the guy? Because we know salvation doesn't come by keeping works of the law. What does the law do? Well, the law, what it does is it reveals God's perfect, holy standard. If you want to understand what God is like, what heaven is like, read the Ten Commandments. There's no lying. There's no cheating. There's no lusting. There's no coveting. There's no murder. There's no sinful anger. It, it, that's what, what the law does is it reveals God's perfect, holy standard. Now, another thing that the law does is it reveals that you and I do not have the ability to keep God's perfect moral standard. That's what the law does. Now, when Jesus directs him and he says, okay, what good deed must I do to enter heaven? He says, go keep the commandments. What this man should have said right then, if he understood his Bible, he should have said, there's no way I can do that. I've, you know? Well, geez, Jesus, you just gave me something impossible to do. I can't do that. That's what he should have said. But look what he does say. Oh, which ones? No problem. Kept these things. And Jesus lists them off. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery and so on. He, gives, he goes to Exodus chapter 20 and he lists five of the Ten Commandments there. Now, these commandments are five of the six commandments that make up the second table of the law. Has anybody ever heard the term, the first table and the second table of the law? Okay, well, the law was done on two tablets, but there, primarily you can divide the Ten Commandments into two categories. One is man's vertical relationship with God. Thou shalt not have any other gods, create graven images, things like that. And then the second table of the law has to do with our relationship on the horizontal plane with others. And so Jesus takes him to the horizontal plane right here. And it's skillful why Jesus leaves out the first ones. And I'm going to give you the key to it. He's, he's leaving out the first ones because the man's pretty much guilty of breaking all of them. Okay? And he goes to the ones that have to do with the second table because he's pointing out the fact that this man isn't doing those. And he leaves out the last commandment that says, do not covet, because we find out that the man's clearly breaking that one as well. And then Jesus adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes into Leviticus now. And he gets the second of the two great commandments. Remember, Jesus asked the teacher, what's the great commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus adds that at the end. So he doesn't read the first table. He reads the second table. He leaves off, do not covet. And then he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He busted this guy completely. This guy is cracked wide open at this point, but he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He goes on and says, well, all these things I've kept from my youth. Okay. Now, presumably, he wasn't around when the Sermon of the Mount was being taught. You know why I say that? Because during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you have sinful anger towards people, Jesus says God sees that as the same sin as murder. It's terrifying. I've, by that standard, we're all probably guilty you know, of some terrible stuff as far as God's concerned, the way that God sees inside your heart. You know? And he says, if anybody looks at a woman to lust after her, that's the same sin as far as God's concerned as adultery going on in the heart because God looks at the heart. Now, this man where he says, all these things I've kept from my youth, it, presumably he was not there at the Sermon on the Mount or he just doesn't understand what Jesus was saying. The Apostle Paul had an issue like this. Do you remember? In the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, as Paul's giving his testimony, he says that concerning the law, I was blameless. Right? Remember Paul said that? Um, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. So Paul said, I kept all the commandments perfectly. But do you remember in the book of Romans, Paul later says, I thought that I, I'm paraphrasing. He says, I thought that I was perfect until I understood the law was spiritual. When, he, when I understood, do not covet. And then he realized that the law was spiritual, that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are dealing with what's going on in your heart. Because everything that's going on with your hands and your mouth is coming out of your heart. And so God is not so interested in the veneer of people. He's interested in what's inside, right? And now this guy says, I've kept all these commandments since I was young. Now, Jesus, no doubt, could have said, okay, <laughs> Do you remember earlier today when, you know, I mean, Jesus could have no doubt went down the list and, and picked a whole bunch of ways that this guy violated the commandments. But he doesn't. And then the man asks something, or he says, what do I still lack? Now, I find that very interesting because this question shows that even though he's very moral, no doubt the guy was probably more moral than any of us in here. You know, he was probably a meticulous law observer, way more, way more religious than any of us, you know, most likely. Maybe not my wife. Ah, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was going to say mother-in-law back there because I was trying to be nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But that's the reality of it, though. This, this guy was he was probably super spiritual looking and everything, super moral guy. But even though he's moral and obedient, even though that he's extremely wealthy, even though he has a power position and he's obviously a man of status and stature, 
he knows that he's lacking something. Now, he has no assurance of his salvation. Self-righteous people have no assurance of salvation, ever. Those that see salvation as something to be earned by works have no security. Do you know why? Because if you think salvation is something to be earned by your works, while you're being a good boy or a girl, you have assurance of salvation. You say, well, I must be right with God because look at how good of a boy I am, you know? Must be. Must be going well. I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing all these good Christian things. I'm, I'm sure I'm saved. But then sin comes in and you start, you do something wrong. You say something to your wife you shouldn't have said in the wrong attitude or you, you know, or you, you try to manipulate your husband or something like that or, you know, or, or you kick your, you know, brother or something. And then you start to say, you know, maybe I'm not saved because look at the way that I'm behaving. And so you have no assurance of salvation if you think salvation comes by good deeds or church attendance or baptism or any other human work. You have no assurance of salvation. This guy has no assurance, although he's moral, rich, man of status, important guy, comes to Jesus. He says, what do I still lack? There's one thing that he's lacking. And that is an encounter with the holiness of God. God hasn't touched him and shown him his terrifying perfection next to his miserable, sinful state. He hasn't seen that yet. And I'm not sure if you can become a Christian unless you've seen that. I'm not sure if you can, because why would you call out to God for salvation if you don't know what you need to be saved from? So, Jesus could have no doubt pointed out the flaws in this guy's walk, no problem. But rather than scratch around on the surface, Jesus cuts through the skin, breaks through the rib cage, and makes an incision straight to his heart. With one sentence, I marvel at Jesus, how, what he can do with one sentence. And with one sentence, he will expose this man's source of self-righteousness, his pride, and the ultimate reason that he will reject salvation. He exposes the God, little g, of this man's heart. And he says, if you want to be perfect, it's number two of our outline, go, or I'm sorry, it's not number two of our outline. We're getting there. If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, Mark's gospel says that when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. Remember that? That's a nice detail. Jesus looked at him and was like, man, I love you, and I, I want you to come to me. And so I'm putting my finger on the one thing that is keeping you from coming to me. And so Jesus is giving so much grace and so much mercy right here. Listen, when you know that something is missing spiritually, that is a gift of God's grace. That is a gift. If you are satiated and you have no idea that you need a savior, you're in a terrible place. 
you're in a terrible place. If you don't wake up every day and realize at least some point throughout the day how desperate you are for Jesus Christ, you're in a terrible place. Terrible. When you know something's missing, what do I still lack? You, you know that God has given you grace because he's shown you the emptiness of your heart that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. He shows you that. That's a gift of God's grace. And when Jesus puts his finger on the idol in your life, the God that you worship, when he puts his finger on the thing that comes before him, that's also a gift of his grace. Right? When God points out to the things in your life that are becoming more important than him, it's a gift of grace. Why? Because you're created to have him alone as your master. Every other master in this world is cruel. Imagine if, you're, if looks are your master, your looks. Imagine if those are your God. Oh, I have to be so prim and make sure that I'm looking good all the time and do 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 and, you know, and then you start to get older and then the wrinkles start to come in and oh my gosh, it's a cruel master, right? Imagine if other people are your master, right? If other people are your master, that's one of the worst because you can make other people happy sometimes, but you can't make other people happy all the time. So if other people are your God, that's a terrible, cruel master. Imagine if like partying is your master. You know, that's something I'm familiar with. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to like chase after feelings in life. That's a cruel master, right? Jesus is the only good master. He's the only good master. Imagine if career's your master. You can't ever advance enough. Imagine if money's your master. You can't ever get enough. Imagine if romance is your master. This partner is just never good enough. They just don't ever do what I want. Everything else is a cruel master, but Jesus Christ is a good master. He's a good king. He's a gracious king. And so when Jesus points out the one thing in your life that's getting in the way of him being the king of your life, that's a gift of God's grace. He's trying to say, look, I'm showing you something. I'm trying to show you what's good for you. And that's what he's trying to do with this guy. He looked at him and he loved him and he said, look, if you want to be perfect, now that word perfect doesn't mean probably what you think it does, maybe, maybe. But what it does mean is mature, fully grown. That's what the word means. If you want to be a mature spiritual person, that's what he's saying, go sell all your stuff and go give it to the poor. Now, is Jesus laying forth the terms for salvation here? Is salvation by grace through faith plus selling everything and giving it to the poor? No, that's not at all what he's doing. What he's doing is he's exposing this man's covetous heart, this heart that loves the security that comes from wealth more than it wants God. And he's putting his finger right on that. Now, this is confusing to the disciples there, and we'll see that more later, because to the Jews, they were kind of like prosperity theologians, in a sense. They thought that if you were wealthy, then that meant that God was blessing your life, right? And we kind of think that sometimes, too. We look at somebody's life that's got a whole bunch of wealth and prosperity and abundance, and we say, well, God must be really blessing them. Maybe not. I know some people with a lot of wealth that don't, aren't concerned about, uh, you know, I know a guy, that, you know, I know a fellow that's incredibly wealthy that, you know, him and his wife have an agreement that as long as he's out of town, he can cheat on her, you know what I mean? And uh, morally bankrupt, but big bank account, right? Terrible. Now, 
the Jews saw this as a sign of, so this was confusing to them, you know. And this guy, he might have thought, I'm really obedient to the law, so obviously God is blessing me because look how obedient I am to the commandments. And, and now what Jesus is saying is go sell this thing. Well, this thing is the sign of his obedience. It's the sign that he's right with God. So Jesus is saying, take this very thing that you think makes you right with God, which doesn't make you right with God, and get rid of it. And that's his word to any of us here today. If you have anything in your heart or your life or your mind that you think makes you right with God other than the cross of Christ, you got to get rid of it. You can't be saved until you do that. <laughs> now, there are two errors that happen when trying to interpret this passage, and I'm just going to talk about them quickly. Um, selling everything given to the poor, it's not a general requirement for salvation, okay? We've made that pretty clear, but there, there are two errors that come when people try to apply this passage. One is saying this applies to everybody. Well, it obviously doesn't apply to everybody, okay? But the second error is saying that it doesn't apply to anybody, right? Those are two errors that people commonly fall into. Maybe it is a direct application for you. Maybe you don't see your need for salvation because you have so much stuff that you're assured that you don't have any needs, right? And so you don't see the need for salvation because you've got security as far as you know, you've got money, you've got, you know, everything taken care of, and so you don't see your need for salvation. So the, the error is that this command here doesn't apply to anybody or it applies to everybody. So it might apply to you. Maybe what God is telling you to do is to go sell off all of your stuff and, and give it to the poor because maybe your wealth is a stumbling block to your obedience to Jesus Christ. It could be. No one can serve two masters. We can't f have any other God in our life. Jesus is putting his finger on this man's God. Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard the saying, that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And it's like, dude, that is tragedy. He missed the opportunity. He could have went away happy and he said he goes away sorrowful. Tragic. Now, he came asking the wrong question, Right? question, what can I do? Jesus gave him a good answer to a bad question. Jesus essentially said to this guy, put me first. And the guy said, nope, not going to do it. That's the offer of salvation to anybody is Jesus says, believe in me, put me first. And if you say, nope, not going to do that, you go away sorrowful. You don't go away saved. That's what he's making very clear here. This guy chose his false god of money and possessions, and he went away sad. Jesus, in verse 23, he said to his disciples, he's going to illustrate um, how tough it is now for, uh, you know, how the hindrance, how wealth is a hindrance. And he says, uh, as surely I say it's hard for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? You know what a camel is, don't you? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine a big old camel? Like they're super, they spit on you too, by the way. Um, not that that's even important. But can you imagine, have you ever seen the eye of a needle? Like, can you imagine trying to, trying to fit, you know? It, these guys would have laughed. This was a Jewish idiom though. This was a figure of speech that they used a lot of times. It was, it's, what it's communicating here is that it's, for a rich guy to repent and to see his need, 
man, there's a slim chance that that's going to happen, right? And he's also illustrating the fact that the main point here is salvation by works is impossible. That's what he's getting at. You asked, um, you know, what can I do to attain eternal life? Well, it's, it's impossible. You can't do it. You know, the reason that it might be so difficult for a wealthy person to repent and put their trust in Jesus is, you know, it's, well, we think it's a sign of God's blessing. You know, all of our needs are met, so therefore we're self-reliant. Um, you know, we have so many opportunities and possibilities in life. If you're wealthy, typically if you get that sense of emptiness, typically you can just go buy it and fill it up with shoes or, you know, or a new car or a motorcycle or something like that or a hobby. You know, you can just continue to fill the void inside of you and never have to like really, you know, deal with uh, the reality that, that your soul is missing something. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, many people, many wealthy people don't long for heaven because they're living their best life now. You know, I reject all Christian teaching that says you can live your best life now. If, you, if any Christian so-called person thinks you can live your best life now, they have not read the Bible and they do not understand what heaven's about, right? Because this is not your best life now. But many wealthy people are living their best life now. And so they say stuff like, I don't want to go to heaven. <laughs> I don't want to leave here. This is heaven. They've made heaven on earth for themselves. So that's why Jesus said it's incredibly difficult if it'll even happen. Now, I want to make a comment here real quick because we in America, and this ties into the video we watched before, we're incredibly wealthy people. We're incredibly self-reliant. We're incredibly idolatrous, you know, in America. Compared to everybody else in this world, we have wealth, you know, almost everybody in this world. We have a lot of wealth. So don't just dismiss this as saying, well, I don't have a Maserati and stuff. I'm not one of these rich people that he's talking about. Don't dismiss it so quickly. When the disciples heard it in verse 25, they were greatly astonished. Again, because wealth was a sign that you were right with God. So they're thinking, if this obedient, wealthy, you know, young, intelligent, high-status guy gets turned away, who in the world could be saved then? That's the right question. That's the question the rich young ruler should have asked. When Jesus said, keep the commandments, he should have said, well, who could be saved then? Because nobody can do this. That was the right question. The disciples are picking it up, what he's putting down. It is impossible for man to save himself. Salvation is by divine grace. It's a gift of God. It's pretty interesting to think about for a second. You think a lot of churches, you know, may, you know, or the body of Christ got a guy that's, you know, he's young, he's intelligent, he's good with finances, lots of money, and he comes and he wants to join the church and he wants to serve. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of good qualities, but, you know, he doesn't want to repent and he doesn't want to become a Christian. But wh why don't we do this? Let's just bring him in and we will like, uh, you know, over time, we'll share the gospel with him. You know, it sounds like the emergent church movement, right? Like just welcome everybody in the culture in here into, into you know, Rockstar Church. And then we'll slowly talk about the blood of Christ and, and all this stuff about how they need to repent. And we'll just kind of tuck that in there. But but since he has so many worldly good things going for him, we should just welcome him into church, right? But praise God that Jesus cares so much about people's souls that he's not thrown off by your veneer, right? Jesus doesn't look, I love Jesus because man falls underneath this junk all the time. But Jesus looks at this guy and he sees the condition of his heart and he doesn't see any of these accolades that he has on the outside. And he says, I'm so concerned about what's going on inside with you that I'm going to have to reject you, you know? Jesus has good boundaries, by the way. If you don't come this way, you don't come. And Jesus has no problem with that. 
If you don't get rid of every false God in your life, every false sense of security and everything that you put above Jesus Christ, if you don't get rid of all of it, you can't be saved. And that's what he's saying. Makes me think of this mega church that I was watching a documentary out in, in New York, and it's like Justin Bieber's church, and it's like, big deal, man. All these people get a hold of Christian celebrities. It makes you think of Christian celebrity, you know? It's like the guy's been saved for like two weeks, right? And, oh, he's Christian, so get him to start speaking in the church. And the guy, and then you look at what he's doing in his life, and he's like collaborating with all these satanic people and all this other stuff, and Kanye West, the same thing. And Christians gobble that stuff up because they look at the outside and they say, oh, this is so good good. Look at these guys are Christian. Those guys aren't. Kanye West does stuff that's not Christian at all. If you do any research about him, he supports this guy called Lil Nas. That's like a total blatant Satan Satan worshiper. And he like funds his albums. But the church says, oh, let's get him in here. Joel Osteen brings him in. Let's have a worship service together, guys. It's because they're not doing what Jesus did here, right? The outside world looks on at that stuff and they say, man, if that's Christianity, that's phony, man. Yeah, no kidding. That is phony Christianity, but oh, we're so enthralled by the way the guy looks on the outside. Look at God looks at the heart. Okay, you could have whatever veneer you want on you today, but God looks at your heart. He sees your heart. Praise God. I got a doctor that doesn't want to just fix my hangnail. He wants to go for my heart condition. You know, that's a good thing. Verse 26, but Jesus said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's not just the rich that have difficulty. It's nobody can save themselves by their works. You can't save yourself by any human work. No achievements or talents or good deeds. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. Situation isn't hopeless. God has an entirely different plan. It's for you to admit your need and to receive from him. Just to admit, I need you, Lord, and receive. Number three, the wealth that believers inherit. Then Peter asked him and said to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what do we get? (laughs) I love it. Jesus doesn't even rebuke him for it and say, You know, (laughs) really? That's cool. We were reading a passage in the Old Testament today when Abraham, and he looks at the Lord, What shall I have? You promised me a son. What shall I have? Shall I have one? You know, it's, it's interesting that God doesn't reject that question about, you know, what should, what do I get, you know, like as following you. And the disciples had given up a lot. You know, Jesus, Peter's essentially saying, we've done everything that you just asked the rich young ruler to do. We've given up everything. They gave up lucrative careers, um, you know, houses, families, spouses. They, they put all that stuff on hold for being, to be obedient to the kingdom of God. When God called them to part and to, and to put him first in these situations, they did it. And so Peter rightly says, what do we get? And he goes on and says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. No. When he's talking about in the regeneration there, that word is typically used of individuals that are born again, okay? But that's not how it's meant here. What he's talking about here is when Jesus makes the new world, he's going to come after the church age, and there's going to be terrible judgment 
on this world. After the church age is done, there's a window of grace that's open right now. You can receive Jesus by grace right now, but that is coming to an end. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come to the air and he's going to grab his church. And when he does that, the great tribulation will be poured out upon and there'll be a seven-year period of judgment that's really designed to judge the disobedient Israel, but everybody's going to kind of feel the effect of it that hasn't received Christ. At the end of that period, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up and rule and reign for a long period of time. And during that time, that's what he's talking about here, the 12 are going to have some sort of special position in this. They're going to somehow rule and reign in this position. So what do we get? Well, and I like what he's saying too. Peter, the blessing might not be right now, but it's coming. Now that's a good word for anybody here today that's dealing with the difficulties of life and following Jesus is the blessing might not come right now in your life. It might be later. It might be both. A lot of us, it's both. But he's telling Peter that this is coming and they're going to sit on 12 thrones and they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a specific, special place for the followers of Christ for these guys. And he says in verse 29, and everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, he shall receive or shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's not a mathematic formula. Like I parted with one wife to go and be a missionary. Now I'll receive a hundred wives. <laughs> no. All the guys that are married in here are like, God, no. <laughs> ah, just kidding. <laughs> we can't even love the ones that we have properly. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So it's not a mathematical formula is what he's getting at. He's just saying that there's nothing that you give away that you don't get abundantly blessed, you know? And anybody that's ever sacrificed anything for Christ, you know, you know that. You experience that. You may go through seasons where you go, oh, God, I don't know. But, I mean, ultimately, you know, like, the, what you receive spiritually you know, by putting Jesus first in your life, nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to that reward. And then he adds at the end of that sentence, he says, and inherit eternal life, as if that's not enough. You know, it's so interesting to think about the fact God owes us nothing. You know, he owes us nothing. He could be perfectly just in just wiping everybody out because everybody breaks his laws. And he could be perfectly just in just wiping everybody out. And he gives so much, you know. He doesn't even have to let you breathe. Doesn't even have to let you do that. But he does, because he loves you and he gives you so much. And he adds that, and inherit eternal life. It's like eternal life. Like, you mean that rather than go and spend a destiny in hell and get the just penalty for my disobedience, you mean rather than that, you've made a way for me to have eternal life? What do we get, Peter says? He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Heaven's way of looking at things is a little bit different on the earth. You know, this guy's a ruler. He's over people, no doubt. And he's wealthy and he's got all this stuff that makes for like a high position. Well, Jesus is saying what's going to happen in the judgment when it all pans out is there are people that are living today that are very powerful. They've had their best life now and they're going to be humbled to being like everybody else. And everybody's going to be the same. You know, the first will be last and the last first. Everybody's going to, you know, be in heaven. And, and, you know, and Jesus is the only one that's exalted. In this world, 
man exalts himself and people exalt man and people exalt women and celebrities and they put people on pedestals. But in heaven and what should be going on in the true church is there's only one person that's exalted. You shouldn't be Hillsong, New York with the VIP section with all the, you know, lukewarm, maybe Christian celebrities. Only one person should be getting exalted, and that's Christ. He alone is good. Who do you call? Why do you call me good? Jesus is essentially saying I'm God. You know, he's getting at it. You know what I mean? It's there. He's good. He's the only one to exalt. Let me make a few applications and we're done here. First of all, uh, you have to understand salvation is impossible for man. There are no works that a person can do to earn salvation. When he asked what I could do, the correct answer is there's nothing you can do but receive forgiveness and receive Christ. And that's the only thing you, that's the only thing you can do is receive salvation. You're in a hole. There's no way to get out of that thing. And there's one hand reaching in there, and that's Jesus Christ. And you can take that, and that's it. That's the correct answer. Now, next thing, the offer of salvation to any man or woman, it's to any man or woman that will renounce allegiance to any false god and rather trust in the true and living God. This does not only apply to money and material wealth, what's going on in this passage. Man can make a God out of nearly anything, and he does. Sell everything could be Get rid of that all-consuming desire for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a lover. Get rid of that all-consuming desire that controls your life because that's your God. It's controlling your life. It's your God. It's your top priority. That's your God. Get rid of that. Sell everything might mean that. Sell everything might mean I got to get rid of that comfort zone because I'm so, I so worship my own comfort that it's getting in the way of me being obedient and following Jesus. I don't know if I want to be all in with this Christian stuff because it might ask me to part with my comfort zones. Well, sell everything to you might mean that. Sell everything might be, I need to get rid of a certain toxic relationship because it's codependent and this person keeps manipulating me all the time and I'm actually in slavery and I'm not supposed to be slave to anything except for a voluntary slave of Christ. Maybe that's God's word. Maybe sell everything means I need to get rid of the need to be popular. Maybe sell everything means I need to get rid of the need to feel intellectually superior to people or moral or good or whatever, you know, it is. So sell everything just means you need to get rid, I need to get rid of the thing that stands in the way of my obedience and my allegiance to Jesus Christ. It could also mean some things that you may not think. It might mean you need to get rid of standing on the fact that you were baptized as a sense of being right with God. Baptism doesn't save anybody, but there are a lot of people today that are standing on that ritual and, and they think that the, because they were dipped in some water when they were a baby, that they're good with God now, right? And if that's the case, you need to sell that. You need to get rid of that because Christ saves. Baptism is a symbol of being saved, and it's an important thing to do for obedience. It's a beautiful thing. But you can't stand on that as a grounds for salvation or communion, that you took your first communion or that you were confirmed or that you kept sacraments or that you do good deeds or that you put money in the box at church or that you attend church or that you read your Bible. All of those things, if you're standing on those 
and you're thinking, those are the reasons that I'm going to heaven is because I do these things, you have to get rid of that. You have to trust in Christ alone. You do all those other things because you have salvation, not to earn salvation. Huge difference in those things. Last application here is just to appreciate the gospel. You know, rather than going away sorrowful, you know, our joy springs eternal, right? Doesn't it? I mean, I think, I thank God so much for the fact that I'm not saved by my works. <laughs> that salvation doesn't come by my works. I would be a, in a terrible position if that happened. I could never go. I could never go to heaven if it was based on my works. I've sinned today. On the way here today, I almost ran some people over with my car. And, you know, I, and I was honestly, they were trying to walk when it was the red light. And I was like, I'm going to teach them a lesson and I'm not even going to slow down. And I'm thinking, well, good, you're going to be a pastor at the church. What's wrong with you, you know? But that's what the wicked evil that's in people's hearts, it, it thinks things like this, you know? And so, you know, I didn't hit them. You know, you'll be glad to know. Um, and, you know, they'd been up all night. It was like quarter to seven. They'd been up all night. And I saw them and I was like, these people need to, you know, you know, and I was judging them. And you know what God said to me? God's like, um, uh, you know, you're no better than anybody else. And if it wasn't for my grace, that's what you'd be doing. You'd be up all night for three days in a row, walking across the street at seven in the morning. And here comes some morally superior guy that's checked all the boxes, you know. And, and so he's taken the other way to avoid God through morality. And these guys are taking the other way to avoid God through, you know, immorality. And so, but we're both trying to avoid God here all at the intersection in the morning. And, uh, you know, so appreciate the gospel, you know, and then God called me, he said, Adam, Adam, you know, that's how I heard it. I don't, I'm not saying that God speaks to me like a, he doesn't call me on my phone and I, oh, it's God, hey. Not like that. I'm just saying, in my, I just realized this in my conscience, man, you could, you could be the same, you know, if, if God's grace, if it wasn't for God's grace. And so you appreciate the gospel, all your striving, all of your attempts to justify yourself, you know. All of those Stuart Smalley moments where you think you've got to sit and look yourself in the mirror and say, gosh darn it, I'm good enough. You don't even have to do that anymore. You don't have to pump up your self-esteem. You don't have to try to bolster yourself up based on anything. You just say, God loves me and he saves me because of his grace. And you appreciate the gospel. Father, thank you for your word here today. And we love you. And we trust that, I trust, Lord, that you've spoken uh, through your word. And thank you that you've been so gracious to give your word to us. And Lord, we do need your grace day after day. And we do, as soon as our eyes open, we just, we realize our dependence. We need you, Lord. We're dependent upon you. Heavenly Father, I do pray for anybody here today, Lord, that has not experienced your holiness, that hasn't been convicted of their sin. Lord, that, that the sin that they're committing in life is against you and that you're a holy God and that what they're doing is offensive to you, Lord. I pray, God, that your spirit would convict them, Lord, so they could become saved. I pray, Father, for those of us that have been convicted of our sin. At one point or another, we've put you as first in our lives. But, Lord, we're, allow we're allowing things to creep in. Lord, there are things that are trying to get in the way of our obedience to you. Lord, show us those things. Give us the grace to repent from them and help us to honor you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.